go ahead and open your Bibles to the Old Testament. Second Chronicles is where we're going to be once again as we continue our series entitled Jumping Jehoshaphat. And last week we introduced that series to you, told you where that phrase came from and what movie it actually was made popular by. This is a continuation of what was started um, in our children's musical on Mother's Day weekend where our kids did a musical entitled Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat. And I said that a lot of us don't know that story of that king. And while that moment in the musical is actually at the end of the saga that we have in Scripture, we decided we would uh, take a couple of weeks, three actually, and and move forward and unpack that story a little bit because there's a lot there uh, that we need to know. Uh, I also said last week that this would be a little bit different than some of our other series. Um, And what I'm asking you to do is just open your Bible, not that that's different. We use the Bible every week. But actually, open your Bibles up and then keep them open. And we do that every week, too, but I know some of you close them up, okay? But we really need to keep them open this week so we kind of plow through and move through together. Second Chronicles 18 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at 27 verses. And so we're just going to kind of move through them, talk about them, move through them, talk about them. We have a long way to go, and you're saying, well, it's a holiday weekend. Get us out early. Well, we'll see. Um, but we're talking about jumping out and jumping back. And then next week, we'll wrap up this series on Jehoshaphat, and you'll know all you want to know about this king who, a couple weeks ago, you didn't know who he was. Uh, but the, the lessons are important. As you uh, look at this, one of the things that I would remind you of is that it is easy, as I said last week in the Old Testament, to get bogged down with names and places that seem so far away and disconnected. But as we cut through it, you're going to discover that those names and those places, although they seem a long way away, have a lot to do with us in the here and the now. And so the invitation this morning is what we'll always do. Let's dig into this thing together. Let's see what we can find. Let's see what we can discover and trust that God's going to teach us some things, uh, maybe in a passage of Scripture that we're not used to seeing. And when we get done today, we're also going to move into a segment of Scripture that for a lot of scholars, a lot of theologians, uh, a lot of critics of the Bible, is one of the most talked about and most controversial passages in Scripture. Now, we're not going to get bogged down in the high weeds, but we're not going to skip past it. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk through it and at least introduce you to some things and some ideas of what's going on there. And maybe you've never even heard it before. And when you hear it, you're going to go, what's that all about? And when you leave, you'll still be saying, what's that all about? But at least you'll understand it a little bit better. How about that? That's the only promise that I can make. Um, as we begin today, since school is now out, I want to tell you a story about the first day of school. Are you looking forward to that? I know some parents are. It's only been, you know, it's only been a day. Um, but here we are again looking toward the first day of school. A teacher on the first day of school was going through the, the routine of meeting her class and getting to know her class. And so she was just discussing the different jobs that were held by parents of the students trying to get a feel for who was in the class. Um, when she called on little Johnny, she said, well, what does your father do? And Johnny said, well, my father is a magician. And she said, really, what is his best trick? His best trick, that's easy. It's sawing people in half. And the teacher said, that's wonderful, that's fantastic. Well, now tell me, are there any more children in your family? And he said, yes, ma'am. I have a half-brother and two (laughs) half-sisters. You, uh, sometimes you cut things off at the wrong spot, right? And, and, and. And this is going to be one of those days where 
there's a lot of his narrative that, that we're going to have to cut out, skip past. And then there's also times where you're going to feel like this morning we end up at an odd cutoff spot. We do, uh, but it's okay. We'll, we'll get there from where we're starting at. The first thing I want you to see, if you have your worship flyer, is we're going to talk about jumping out. Uh, jumping out, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Because we begin our story in verse 1, um, and Jehoshaphat has arranged for his son to marry the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel. Look in verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and he made an alliance with Ahab through marriage. If you go back to what we talked about last week, we recognize Jehoshaphat is a guy who has now kind of, kind of re-implemented a focus on God throughout Judah. And so he has gone back through and he's turned down, torn down some of those, the idol worship places. The Bible tells us he doesn't, cons- doesn't consult with false idols. And other countries are fearful of him. We, le- we did all this last week. And so God is blessing that. And so we pick up in verse 1, and you catch that, that immediately noted again, where it says, he had riches and honor and abundance. In other words, God is just blessing what he's done. He's blessing the efforts that he's made. As you might imagine, he sets up this marriage, and it was done for political reasons, which was very commonplace. Uh, arranged marriages were set up because of the advantage that they could give to nations, uh, both of them advantageously. But that becomes an important part of the story. Look at verse well, let's not look there yet. Um, one other thing you need to know about this is before you get too excited about this, you go, oh, there's a wedding. How cool. Okay. Except for this, that Ahab is not a God-fearing king. And so here we have Jehoshaphat who has tried his best to realign people with God. But Ahab is not a good guy. So Jehoshaphat, who has carefully tried to stay on a righteous path, now has ventured off of it for the sake of this relationship that he's tried to set up with his daughter. The end result, I'll tell you the end right now, the end result is going to ripple through and cause trouble for not only his household, but for his people. And as a side note that we could make a main point, that we could pound on, but it goes without saying. Who you associate with, who you link your life to, who you allow to become close to you, really does matter and strengthens or weakens your ability to be the person that God has called you to be. And so even before we read verse 2, we already discover something that we already know to be true in our own lives, the lives of those that we meet, the lives of those that we love. And it's a place to remember why it is that God tells us to be wise in those relationships. It's not because he's out there gunning for you and it's not because he wants something bad for you. It's because he wants the best for you. And he wants you to be the best version of you. And I won't stop this long on every verse. All right. Verse 2. Jehoshaphat is invited to Israel um, for a big party. Verse 2. After some years, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Now, he has set up the marriage, and a number of years now have passed. We pick the story up. Ahab sacrifices many sheep and cattle for him and the people who were with him. And then he persuaded him to march up to Ramoth-Gilead. Jehoshaphat gets there and they make sacrifices. They welcome him. They have a blowout party. And the king, Jehoshaphat, gets starstruck by Ahab. He gets flattered. He gets overwhelmed. He likes the outpouring of, of love and goodwill and good feeling that's thrown his way. What he doesn't know yet is that he is being set up. 
Ahab is beginning the process of setting him up and proposes an alliance against Ramoth-Gilead. And Jehoshaphat agrees, verse 3. For Israel's king Ahab asked king, Judah's king Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And he replied to him, I am as you are. My people as your people, we will be with you in the battle. So very quickly, Jehoshaphat says, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, the whining and the dining and the celebration, and we're going to get our kids, we're going to be married together, we're going to do family together, we're going to do life together. Um, by the way, will you march with me? we got, got a fight coming up. Will you go with me? Well, sure. I mean, we're family now. Your people, my people, my people, your people. Yeah, we're in this thing together. But then Jehoshaphat still is a guy who has tried to realign his life with God. So he's still thinking clear thoughts. So he, he's wise enough to see a problem or at least ask, is there a problem with some of the people that are advising King Ahab? And so he suggests that maybe they should go talk to God before they go into battle. Good, good idea, right? Verse 4. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, First, please ask what the Lord's will is. So here's Jehoshaphat, and he has a desire to do good. That's not the issue here. But stop for a minute and ask yourself this question. What do you think about Jehoshaphat first promising to help Ahab before they consult God? I mean, is it just me as I read the passage, or do you see the problem already emerging here? And again, we could pause in this Old Testament saga and look at our own lives and ask ourselves, how often is it that we get into situations before we ask God about them? And we've determined in our lives that that doesn't always turn out good. See, the proper order of decision-making, just in case you didn't know what I was going to say, is let's start with God first. God, what do you want me to do? What's the plan? What's your will? What's your guidance? What's your word say about this? Then you make the decision. But, as we all know, because you've done it, and if you haven't, the people in front of you have, we often, often, often make a choice and then come back later and say, God, you're going to bless that, right? And we ask God to bless and fix and somehow manipulate what we've already done that maybe, just maybe, we ought not to be in the midst of had we gone to him first. That's where we get in this particular chapter. In this particular chapter. Jehoshaphat is... A good guy. He wants to be a God guy. But remember last week, we talked about doing the right thing at the right time in the right way and making sure you use the right words. Even when you do that, you can get into trouble. And when you don't do the right thing at the right time in the right way, the results can be, can be disastrous. And it's not easy. Because there are always people around us that are trying to go a different direction and our default is not to do the right thing. Our default is to kind of lead with our heart. And the people around us sometimes make that easier. But when you learn to step back and do the right thing first, that matters and it sets you apart. Um, it's been 10 years ago now that a little honesty paid handsome dividends for a young man by the name of Herbert Tarvin. He was 11 years old 
what had happened is he drew praise for returning 85 cents. The reason that he returned 85 cents and became a hero is because um, an armored car had crashed and spilled hundreds of thousands of dollars on a Miami street. You may remember this. It happened in February of 1997. He found $85 in this aftermath of this accident and took it and held it and held on to it until the chaos had calmed down enough so he could actually return it uh, to the police. For his honesty, Herbert, his family, and his ex- entire sixth grade class at the St. Francis Xavier Catholic School spent a day at Walt Disney World in Orlando on the tab of Disney and Southwest Airlines. They flew them all up to reward a kid for 85 cents of being honest. He said, back in the original article, Dude, you just do the right thing. I turned the money in because it didn't belong to me. And there was no way that it was ever going to belong to me because it wasn't mine. That's pretty good for an 11-year-old. The reason that this story became such a big story is that $500,000 of it was picked up by other people and never returned. See, of the half million dollar plus accident, other people on the street that day picked up a half million dollars and decided to keep it. And of the 25 or so that they estimated that picked up money, only an 11-year-old boy stood around long enough to turn in his 85 cents. Some were eventually caught via security cams. But 10 years ago, there weren't quite as many security cams. And so to this day, that honesty stands out because when people could have stood up and done the right thing, they didn't. And so when you're making decisions, when the moment comes, a lot of times your decisions that you're making are made in the heat of a moment, right? And so all those moments that you've had prior to that moment go into that decision making. For Jehoshaphat, he slows down enough to say, you know, we really need, maybe we should talk to God about this. And he does it a heartbeat too late. Because he's already made a commitment to the king that I'm with you. He flipped it just a little bit. And that little flip matters a great deal. Ahab summoned his prophets, though. He listened to him. He's got an ally. We're going to be family now, right? So he summoned his prophets. He brought them together, and they all said that God was going to give them victory. Verse 5. So the king of Israel gathered the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, Should I go to Ramoth-Gilead for war, or should I refrain? And they replied, March up, and God will hand it over to the king. There are some times when we jump out, we jump into situations where we need to jump back just a little bit. And in essence, that's what Jehoshaphat has the opportunity to do. He's got himself into a situation. He's tried to pull it back just a little bit. Let's talk to the prophets. Let's see what's going on. Prophets come. You're going to win. This is a good deal. And so all is well with the story. And if we closed up the Bible at this point and said, okay, let's go home and let's move into our holiday weekend We could do so and smile about it. But the problem is the passage isn't done yet. There's a lot more to come. And the next thing you need to see is that there are also some moments you need to jump back. This is Jehoshaphat's jump back moment, uh, whether he realized it or not. Um, 
he does something that, again, is incredibly wise. He asks specifically, not just for a prophet, but for a prophet of the Lord. Look what happens in verse 6. But Jehoshaphat asks, isn't there a prophet of Yahweh here anymore? Let's ask him. Ahab, I'm sure, raises an eyebrow and says, well, there's one prophet of the Lord left, but then Ahab says, I don't like him. And Jehoshaphat says, well, you shouldn't talk about God's prophets like that. Remember that next time I say something you don't like. (laughs) In verse 7, we read, The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There's still one man who can ask Yahweh, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me. Only disaster. He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Isn't that one of the funnier verses in Scripture? I hate this guy because he never says anything good about me. Oh, he talks to God. He gets a word from God. It's just never good. Now, if you're Jehoshaphat, you ought to be thinking, what have I done? Instead, he says, to his credit, the king shouldn't say that. Which is also an understatement. Ahab calls from Micaiah, verse 8. So the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hurry and get Micaiah, son of Imlah. I mean, after you jump back, Jehoshaphat really should have taken some inventory of what's going on right now and, and should have been thinking to himself, you know, this, okay, this doesn't sound good. I mean, what are the chances of the prophet of God showing up and if he never says anything good about Ahab, that he's going to say something good about him right now? I mean, what are the chances? But here they are, and so we now we go to point three, jumping off. And this is where I told you, this is one of the more complicated, debated, confusing, somewhat perplexing passages in the Bible, for some. For some, you've never read it before until now. So that's okay. Um, I know that when we were getting ready for the kids' musical, uh, believe it or not, when we choose these things, Leanne starts in the process of you know, praying over, looking at the storyline, while we're trying to communicate, you know, uh, is that something we want to share? Are our kids ready to share that? You know, how do we teach our kids these truths of Scripture? But we also do the background reading of the story itself, so we understand the context. Believe it or not, even as we got ready, this came up in the context of what we were getting ready to do with the children's musical. With a look at the passing, like, what is going on here? What's happening? And, and if you don't know, with so much buildup, you've got to know, right? So let's take a look. Um, verse 9. The king of Israel and king Jehoshaphat of Judah, clothed in royal attire, were each sitting on his own throne. And they were sitting on the threshing floor at the entrance to Samaria's gate, and all the prophets were prophesying in front of them. Um, Verse 10. Then Zedekiah, son of Tenaiah, Tenaniah, Tenahiah, (laughs) made iron horns and said, This is what the Lord says. You will gore the Arameans with these until they're finished off. And if you keep reading, all the other prophets agreed. Verse 11. And all the prophets were prophesying the same, saying, March up to Ramoth, Gilead, and succeed, for the Lord will hand it over to you. Meanwhile, the messenger has also gone to get Micaiah, as requested. And so Micaiah comes in, and verse 12 unfolds. The messenger who went to call Micaiah instructed him, Look. The words of the prophets are unanimously favorable for the king. 
So let your words be like theirs and speak favorably. So when the messenger gets there, he says, look, we got 400 out there saying this is a good deal. You, for our king, are a royal pain. Get it, royal pain. Get in line. Get in line. Appreciate the pity laugh. Get in line. Get in line with the other prophets. And just say what they're saying. Stick with the company line. Don't hack off the king. Let's not have a scene. Let's not make him look bad in front of this new family member. Got it? You love it when you talk to a prophet that way. Verse 13. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, I will say whatever my God says. Okay, so now this prophet's going to be a prophet. He's going to be faithful. He's going to do what God tells him to do. Which at this point in the story still could be good, still could be bad. We don't know yet, but you know what's coming. And so when Micaiah arrives, Ahab asks if they should go to war. Uh, Micaiah says to go ahead. It'll be a glorious victory. He was pretending to go along with the other prophets. Verse 14. So he went to the king, and the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to Ramoth Gilead for war, or should I refrain? And Micaiah said, march up and succeed, for they will be handed over to you. Again, the story is good at this point, right? 400 prophets have come. Prophet of God has come. Boom, we got the word. Let's go. Now Ahab enters the conversation again. Because Ahab has already telegraphed this. This prophet never has anything to say good about me. Yahweh never thinks I'm doing it right. I never do things like God wants me to do them, at least the God of this particular prophet. And now you show up and you tell me that I ought to do what all the other ones are telling me? You never kind of give me that news. You never give me that news. What's going on? And so King Ahab says, How many times must I make you swear not to tell me anything but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Micaiah then tells him in a vision that he saw Israel scattered on the mountains with their master killed. So Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let each return home in peace. Ahab complains. And he says in verse 17, so the king of Israel says, didn't I tell you he never prophesies good about me? Only disaster. Because now they know they're hearing the real prophecy from Yahweh. And Micaiah continues describing a vision. And this is where people start getting out in the high weeds and wondering what's going on. Because the Lord is sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him. And apparently it's a kind of a committee meeting. And God asks, who can entice King Ahab to go into battle so he can be killed? A spirit approaches the Lord and said he could do it by inspiring all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. Verse 18. Then Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the whole heavenly host was standing at his right hand and his left hand. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one was saying this and another was saying that. 
And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord asked, how? So he said, I will go and I will become a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Then he said, you'll entice him and also prevail. Go and do that. Now, verses 18 through 21, if you don't get it just by reading it, for commentators, theologians, critics of the Bible, this is a whole can of worms that if you really like to get bogged down, you can get bogged down at this point. Because apparently there is a committee meeting going on. The heavenlies are standing around God. And God kind of rolls out a question. What are we going to do? And so there's ideas. One offered this, one offered that. God's listening and one steps up. I said, I, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go down and I will tell the prophets of King Ahab to lie to him. And they're going to tell him to go into battle. He's going to be killed. Boom. Wow. Got it. And God says, oh, yeah, it's a good plan to do that. Now, again, in our modern day paraphrase of, well, that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. But yet, contextually, it helps to kind of keep in mind what's going on here and go back over what is unfolding here. Because indeed, the Old Testament story proposes that God sent a lying spirit. And we know that a lying spirit would be from Satan. So, as you go back, grab the context. Don't get bogged down any more than I've already bogged you down. The prophet has been brought before Ahab. He has given the company line, and he's gotten rebuke for it. Okay? Micaiah has said what they wanted him to say. And so now, he mocks, his false pro- he mocks his fellow false prophets with a tale to drive home the point. And the prophets that Ahab is listening to have already uttered lies. And so he's answering a lie with a story. Verse 14. Ahab didn't like it when the prophet told the king what he didn't want to hear. In verse 16, Ahab didn't like it when the prophet told him, I'm sorry, Ahab in verse 14 didn't like it when the prophet told him what he wanted to hear. In verse 16, he didn't like it when the prophet told him what he didn't want to hear. And so now the prophet tells him in another way. He says the same thing with a twist. Your prophets who are speaking to you are lying because that is God's plan for you. That is the plan that the holy God has for you, that these guys would lie to you, you would make a bonehead choice, and you're going to die. So as you read through that, and you say, what the heck is going on? Please recognize this. God's not lying. He's using a lying spirit to feed a lie to false prophets. And then the prophet of God is telling the truth about the lie. So God's not lying. He's telling the truth. He's telling this is what's happened. This is how it goes. This is what's transpired. This is what's going to go on. You say, that's muddy. Yes, it is. Because there are some things that God does. There are some ways that God works. That I read the stories and I scratch my head sometimes. I go, boy, I wish I understood that better. I wish I had a better handle on it. But at the same time, the reality is God told them what they needed to hear in a way that they could relate to. 
And he told them that that was what he was doing. And they still didn't hear it. I know that there are people who spend a lot of time in their lives saying, I struggle so much because I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do. And this is a passage that reminds me, in a bizarre, strange way, God can communicate to us in a way that we will understand it, in a way that we can relate to it, in a way that we can hear it. And if we're willing, we can dial into it. Here is the king, King Ahab, who has an amazing opportunity. He hears what he wants to hear. And he knows it's not true. He hears what he doesn't want to hear. And he doesn't like it. And then he hears a very clear, clear reason that he's heard what he's heard and why he likes what he hears and how God has provided him that opportunity. Pay attention. Back off. Change your mind. Which way do you want to hear it? And all of a sudden you begin to realize that in one moment, God has communicated in three different ways what Ahab needed to hear, what Jehoshaphat had asked to hear. And Ahab's not going to listen. There are moments in our life where no matter what we hear, we're going to do what we're going to do. For King Ahab, this is that moment. For Jehoshaphat, he has now obligated himself to go along with a plan that apparently, for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to be able to get out of. Yet he knows what's going to unfold. And how God provides, by the way, is where we're going to go next week as we wrap up the series. But if you take a look at what happens to Micaiah then, in verse 23, then Zedekiah, son of Tenaniah, came up, hit Micaiah in the face, and demanded... Which way did the Spirit of the Lord lead me to speak to you? In other words, they mock him at this point because he's now said a couple of different things. And so this guy who came up with this original plan, uh, he, is, uh, he is now mocking him. And then Ahab orders the prophet of God arrested. Then the king of Israel ordered to take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this guy in prison and feed him only bread and water until I come back safely. And Micaiah answers and says, if you ever return safely, the Lord hasn't spoken through me. And then he says, listen up. Listen all you people. Hear what I have to say. In other words, they've slapped him, they're going to throw him in prison. And the king says, put him in there until I get back. And the prophet of God is not done. He goes, if you come back, then you'll know that God wasn't speaking through me. Listen, people. Let what's getting ready to happen become the evidence of the reality of the prophecy of God here. Because what God says is real. What God says goes. God doesn't have a hand in this. And so Micaiah, even on his way out, looks back at the king and he's telling the king goodbye. And so with that innocent moment, bye-bye-bye, and he is gone, and it's over, and we actually get to the end of our passage. You say, what a strange place to end. Yeah, 
Remember I started with a story about cutting things up in a weird way? It, 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 it's, there's a moment that it's, you get to a point where you have to recognize that here we have a king who's begun this journey uh, of saying the right thing at the right time, using the right words, doing things in the right way. And very easily has now gotten off track and drawn into a situation with a relationship that's not good, that's not pleasing to God. He's wise enough to see it in the midst of it, but as it's unfolding, it gets crazy, and all of a sudden, it becomes very confusing and very muddled. Very much like real life. And in those moments, being able to hold on and remember and anchor to the clarity of God carries you through those but you have to be willing to listen and hold on. If you don't, you find yourself in very deep water. The uh, 405 in California was a parking lot. Tommy's knuckles were white as he gripped the steering wheel. He took a deep breath and he closed his eyes and he silently willed the cars in front of him to move. But when he opened his eyes, all he could see were miles and miles and miles of red taillights and the endless stream of unmoving automobiles stretched out in front of him. Where is everyone going? He said out loud, but even though he was the only person in the car. The blood pounded in his temple, sweat ran down his neck and hit the collar of his white button-down Oxford, and he thought about the device in his trunk. The device that would unleash a new wave of terror on an unsuspecting world. He took another deep breath, made his decision, swerved out of his lane, and he stepped on the gas. Later, witnesses would recall the impact of what he would do on this particular afternoon and one of the phrases they would say was he seemed like such a nice man. And the truth was, he was a nice man. He had spent his entire life doing the right thing. There was a reason that he was in the position that he was in on this day. He had won the PTA Lifetime Teacher Award at Sapothada High School. He had taught band there for 20 years. He was the teacher that every parent hoped their students would get to take a class with. He was not the sort of man that anyone expected to encounter on the shoulder of a Los Angeles freeway, driving like a maniac, armed with a weapon of terror in his trunk, armed with a deadly tuba. You heard me right. I said tuba. Because Tommy played the tuba like Jimi Hendrix played the guitar. He was simply and easily the best tuba player there ever was. Maybe you've heard his work. Blah, 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 blah. He says it much better than that. With just four notes. The copyrighted Price is Right loser theme. He forever captured the essence of a game show heartbreak. Soundbite has been grabbed and used over and over again. He added life to the Simpsons show. His tuba provided the soundtrack as Bart Simpson would ride his skateboard down the street. And he did so much work that you never knew it was him, but you always knew the work. <laughs> 
And he played it better than most because he learned to play the tuba in the right way. And throughout his life, he had done it over and over again. But all of that would pale in comparison to what he was doing on that fateful day in 1975. Desperate to get there, he made another path. And so he swerved off the 405 at speeds that exceeded the legal and allowable standards. He parked his car, opened up his trunk, raced across the parking lot, clutching a 40-pound tuba, and crashed his way through the doors of 20th Century Fox. Claimed his way into a studio full of mu world-class musicians, all seated in an orchestra, ready and waiting to play. Hoping that he wasn't too late, hoping that he hadn't missed the opportunity, he rushed in and apparently had gotten there at just the right time because they were now looking and waiting for him. They all stared at the tardy tubist. He grabbed a dry spit valve towel, mopped the sweat from his brow as the technicians placed the microphone in front of him. And with his heart still hammering in his chest, he looked at the score in front of him for the first time and realized there must be a mistake. Because with the exception of a few measures, all the notes appeared on short ledger lines way above the staff. It's what horn players call from time to time out on the thin branches. It was high for a trombone, high for a French horn, but for a tuba, what was on the page was madness. Tommy paused and called out to the composer, afraid to interrupt because he was already so late, but figured he needed to say it now. Excuse me, I think I have the wrong part. The composer laughed. No? Thanks for getting here, Tommy, but those are your notes. Every one of them are just for you. Because the composer knew that day there was only one man alive, one man that he could turn to turn the tuba, the lumbering, bouncing sound of a tuba, into something truly terrifying. So he had written the most unusual and unique tuba solo that the world had ever heard for the best tuba player that you've never heard of. And the rest is Hollywood history. Because in that same room that day, there was a nervous director now famous, that paced back and forth in nervous anticipation. At the podium, there was a composer who was not yet famous, but one day would be. And he brought the orchestra to the attention, and he smiled down at the tuba player with a sweat-stained shirt, and he gave Tommy just the right words that he needed to hear to allow him to become the best version of him in that moment. And he said, today, Tommy, you're the bad guy. Scare us to death. And Tommy took one very deep breath and with two notes brought a monster to life and gave voice to our most primal fear. Boom. 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 See, you know the composer, John Williams. You know the director, Steven Spielberg. You might even know the name of the mechanical shark. His name was Bruce. But if you were alive and you've seen it, you know the man that put the teeth into Jaws was a man by the name of Tommy Johnson, a mild-mannered middle school teacher who ventured way out on the thin branches and snagged an Academy Award for what many considers considered then and now to be one of the greatest movie theme songs of all time. 
And he also managed to scare most moviegoers out of the water that summer with just two notes from his trusty tuba. And the mere sound of those notes snatches you right back to the moment when you saw the film and the shark. Never underestimate the power of little things. Because little things aren't necessarily simple. Even notes. See, last week we said, if you will use the right words at the right time in the right way and do the right thing, God will take that and use that and take you on a journey beyond anything you can imagine. Jehoshaphat knew they needed to hear the right words. Ahab wanted the right words, but he didn't want to hear them. He wanted his own version of the right words. Micaiah had what they needed to hear, which is a word from God. The timing was right. For Jehoshaphat, the timing was right and he missed it. Because he should have listened to God first before he made his commitment. Timing was lost. Micaiah shows up and knows what needs to be done. And figures out that if he's going to say it, this is what needs to be said and it has to be said now. Jehoshaphat and Ahab heard what Micaiah said. And he spoke in ways that they understood which goes a long way toward explaining that very muddly part of the passage where we get bogged down in they're lying, but God's now telling you the truth about their lies and all of that. He was speaking in a way that they could get it, that they could understand. In a world and a time where there are so many prophets and so many voices saying the wrong thing, and there's only one man saying the right thing in the right way. And so it was said in a way that the message could be heard. And they had to choose to do the right thing. What were they going to do? Next week we find out. We'll continue the story. But the better question is, what do you do? See, because the now what is still the same as last week. It is God giving us the right words at the right time in the right way so that we could do the right thing. And the call of Christ in our life is to share the right words at the right time in the right way. So we can accomplish God's work in our world. And each time that we get the chance to do it, each moment that we get, allows us to take another step forward in our journey of faith so we can live the life that we were created to live and have the impact we were supposed to have. Sometimes decisions are hard. Sometimes life isn't easy. And sometimes the choices you make seem like they cost you everything. Sometimes they do. But if they are what God has called you to do, it is always the right thing. Never, ever underestimate the power of little things. Little words. They go a long way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it matters. It matters what we do. It matters 
how it unfolds. It matters that we make the decisions, the choices that we need to make that allow us to become and do everything that you called and created us to do. Lord, for some, the journey of following you is a choice that still needs to be made. The realization that you love us and that you speak to us and that we have to choose to believe, trust, and follow. For some who are listening, some who will watch, some who will download this, they've never made that choice. And so, God, I pray that this would be that day, their day of decision. To believe that Jesus is everything that he said and more. And to discover that we can trust him with every area of our life. Lord, for others in the room, they've made the decision but this passage drags us back and reminds us again of the importance of how we do things, when we do things, why we do things. And why it's always so important to make sure that we stay grounded and focused and centered in your word. So that we can be who we were created to be. God, teach us those lessons today. Remind us of those lessons this week. And as we move into the summer. Help us to enjoy and embrace the fact that we have a Savior who does communicate with us, who talks to us, who wants us to know how to live the life that we were created to live. Remind us of that, not just this day, but for every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.